Hello, hello. You are listening to a pastor's newspaper, helping you read the news with the Bible in your hand. I am Dr. Castro. It's good to be with you. And we started uh, season three last week uh, talking about um, this growing trend, this growing shift, especially in the Republican Party of American isolationism and uh, disengaging from many of the, the plights of the world. And so you can check that episode out. It's the first episode in season three. And um, I mentioned in the introduction of last week's episode, kind of which different issues we'll probably talk about this year. Obviously, we're in an election year, so we're going to talk about the election uh, probably uh, quite often um, in this year. And so um, even though today's not uh, dedicated to the election, just kind of do a little bit of recapping kind of where we are in the 2024 election. Um, there is now only two candidates in the Republican primary, um, former president Donald Trump and former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, who is also the former secretary of the UN or ambassador, sorry, ambassador to the UN, uh, under former president Trump. And, uh, so far Trump has kind is has done very well in all the primaries um, and also the Iowa caucus. And um, so we've had New Hampshire, uh, Iowa obviously was the first caucus we had, which was a lot more candidates Um, Then we had New Hampshire, which was just uh, Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, um, Ron DeSantis and Chris Christie and Ramaswamy had already dropped out of the race before the New Hampshire primary. And uh, Trump won that state, uh, you know, by 20 plus percent, actually less than that. I think it was less than 20%. Um, and then in South, uh, Nevada, which was a weird kind of whatever caucus primary, um, you know, so that was New Hampshire. I mean, Nevada. And then we had South Carolina, which happened on this past Saturday. Obviously, Nick Haley's campaign hoped to um, do better than 38% in her home state. But um, uh, Trump was able to carry the state by over nearly about 20%. Uh, Nikki Haley actually did better than the polling numbers going into Saturday, but still lost the primary. And then last night we had the Michigan primary. So a different state. We have the industrial states, the, you know, the kind of the first uh, industrial state uh, swing state as well. And Trump did well. He, uh, he won by 40%. And, um, and so that's kind of where we are. Uh, Super Tuesday is on March the 5th, where my state, Tennessee, will go to the polls and vote in the primaries. Um, I early voted. Um, so a lot of the Southern states are on March the 5th. Um, pretty much it's Nikki Haley's Alamo. I mean, she, um, she needs to pick up some States. She needs to pick up some delegates to have any reason to stay in the race. Um, most likely, um, she will probably drop out, um, that night. Um, unless something crazy happens, uh, unexpectedly, which, you know, we've had that in the past, but I just, the way that this primary is going, um, Trump is being treated like an incumbent incumbent. And as you see in the democratic primary where there are some challengers to president Biden, but he's winning, you know, 80, 85% of the vote, right? Um, he got 80 plus, I think, in the Michigan primary and even in New Hampshire, he wasn't even on the ballot um, 
and he won close to 70% of the, of the problem. They had to write his name in uh, because of some disagreements within the Democratic Party and New Hampshire on what should be the first um, primary. Uh, the Biden administration would like to have South Carolina to be the first primary, not New Hampshire and whatever, whatever. So um, that's kind of where we are in the election. Um, it's pretty much a... Um, a pretty much a lock that we're going to get a rematch of uh, Trump and Biden in the presidential election. Um, the general election will start quite early. And uh, so that's where, where we are. Um, I think the kind of the looming issue for former president Trump is not challengers to the uh, nomination, but rather the, uh, his court cases, uh, that will probably draw more negative news for him going forward. Um, and we'll see how that affects, um, his race or his campaign. Um, and, uh, I, I would, you know, obviously I don't know what's going to happen with that. This is kind of historic, um, for a former president and, and current nominee for president to be legitimately in court for criminal cases. Uh, so we don't know what really what to expect with that. And so we'll just kind of react when we get to those type of events. Um, I will say uh, before we jump into kind of a more of a historic episode that it's more centered on uh, theology and uh, Christian just the Christian church in America Um, and less about politics. Um, I will kind of, if you're enjoy listening to a pastor's newspaper, we are, we have a, um, a blog, a website called partners in citizens.org where you can listen to these episodes, but we're also taking these episodes and turning them into short blog articles. So if you're not really into sitting down and listening to a, 30 to 40 minute podcast episode. You'd rather just kind of read a, a quick um, few paragraphs, a kind of summary of the episode. We are providing those um, on our uh, partners and citizen.org site. Um, like the, this past episode that we did last week, um, that um, article is, is up and it's, a four minute read. It says that right on the top of the article, just to kind of give you a, an estimate of how long it, it's going to you know take you to read it. And so just uh, kind of let you know, obviously we'd love for you to listen to the podcast, but if you don't have time, we understand. And we provide those articles. We have also provided um, analysis of the different primaries um, up until this point and some other articles um, about some other issues like foreign policy, um, global missions and cultural issues as well. And uh, so that's the plan is to take these episodes and then turn them into kind of written content for you as well. And so just look for those. And uh, I'm excited about uh, just to kind of plug this as well. Um, being a part of uh, a new podcast that me and former um, missions pastor here at Central Church, John Andrew Clayton, are uh, going to be um, launching a new podcast um, on missions um, in April. And it's going to be a more guest centric podcast. We will have, he will be the first guest in April, but then we'll have other guests from the missions committee here at central church and hopefully some missionary partners uh, with central church and maybe a few other guests to join us and to talk about missions. Um, So that podcast will hopefully be um, 
there for you by the end of the spring and some other things going on that I hope to announce to you at some point soon. And so, but I want to talk about just a kind of a a break from the the political um, issues and the primary and the election and these type of things. And, you know, uh, last week talking about Ukraine and um, kind of America's disengagement with foreign issues or global issues. We talked a lot about Israel and Gaza last year, obviously, and kind of taking a break from that as well. But I uh, want to talk about um, something. I think as a, and these were actually some of the more popular episodes last year, which is uh, episodes about what's happening in different Christian denominations. Um, especially United Methodist church. We talked, uh, extensively about that, talked about the Catholic church as well and talked about, um, Andy Stanley as well. And some of his, um, kind of liberal shifts when it comes to LGBTQ and, um, having a conference for parents, um, who have homosexual children, um, his kind of affirmation, um, of those lifestyles. And, um, and so I want to kind of go back. This was an article, um, written by Eric Smith, who is a professor at Southern seminary around went to school and talking about historically the importance of confessions. And now you're like, what is a confession? Um, if you come from, um, maybe Presbyterian background or other denominational backgrounds it's common to have a confession of faith. Um, and it's what a confession is. It's obviously it's not scripture. It's not saying that this is more important than scripture. What it's providing is just a summary of orthodox views or 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 faithful views of God, faithful views of salvation, faithful views of Christ, faithful views of scripture, faithful views of the church and onward. And I mean, obviously today it's sexual ethics, right? Marriage, um, providing a summary, a biblical summary of those issues. And this is really important. A lot of denominations do not have confessions that I would say many denominations or would we would call anti-confessional, meaning that a view that the Bible alone, we don't need a confession, but I'll say this. Um, when you don't have a confession, you tend to get what happened in the United Methodist church. And like I said, with the Catholic church where the Pope went against the confession, Right. And that's what the, the, the American bishops are saying, like you are going against what we believe, right. Uh, about LGBTQ and blessing same sex marriages. Um, so in 1922, turn of the century, um, of course, you know, of Southern Baptists, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. But in the early 20th century, you had uh, strong Northern Baptist churches. And uh, historically, those churches were were established prior to Southern Baptist churches. Actually, Southern Baptist churches were church plants of the Northern Baptist churches. Um, and in the early parts of the 20th century, there was a battle called the modernist fundamentalist uh, conflict. And a modernist would be, would be defined as someone who uh, would be now considered more liberal in their theological views, more liberal in their views of scripture, 
Um, and modernists have really birthed the, the mainline Protestant um, movement of United Church of Christ, uh, Presbyterian Church of the United States or PC um, of the United States, um, headquartered in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, United Methodist Church, uh, Disciples of Christ, um, uh, the Episcopal Church of America, Reformed Church of America. There's a few other denominations that are heavily um, have, have a heavy presence in the North. Um, these churches um, come out of the modernist movement and their liberal views currently come from the, the, the leadership and influence of the modernist movement of the early parts of the 20th century. And Amongst the Northern Baptists, there was there is a ascending movement of these of modernists within the Baptist churches in the North, and they after World War One there was a, a realization by the conservatives by the fundamentalists that they were losing their denomination to the modernists and. There's uh, one of the leaders of this conservative movement with Curtis Lee Lewis, and they saw the the liberal and unscriptural views of their fellow Northern Baptist pastors and churches, and they were um, alarmed by this growing trend and this growing shift. Um, and at that time, it was you know. Historically, before that time, the the Baptists were quite confessional. They had summaries of faith that they upheld. Um, the one that they had the the Philadelphia Confession, which was um, kind of a, um, uh, a a more it was a, it was a modern. I guess modern is probably not the right term, but it was a, a an addition to the London Baptist Confession of sixteen eighty nine which is a prominent confession that many reformed Baptist churches today still withhold and still follow. Uh, then the Philadelphia confession became the Charleston confession of 1767. But then the New Hampshire confession of 1833 became a prominent confession um, in the 19th century for Baptists to um, follow. Well, after World War One and the ascendance of the modernists within the Northern Baptists, they re- they re- they rejected the North New Hampshire Confession, and so in the 1922 Northern Baptist Conviction meeting in Indianapolis, 1922, this was seen as kind of the the last hope for the conservatives in the Northern Baptist Convention, and and again the. The, the the desire for conservatives was reestablishing a, a confessional culture that they were a, a denomination that that unified around scripture and they used the confession to define what was conservative faithful orthodox interpretation of scripture um is presenting a standard for instruction for evangelism and a bulwark against error and heresy. Um, and that was the desire. Well, the modernists saw confessions, especially the confessions that were used in the past, like Philadelphia confession, the Charleston profession, the New Hampshire confession, and definitely the London Baptist confession as useless relics. And there was a, a desire amongst the fundalists to promote individual experience over precise doctrinal formulations. And that was really the, the, the battle 
uh, within the denomination at that time um, was should, what should win the day? What should, what should unite us? Is it individual experience or precise doctrinal formulations um, and terminology that was used uh, during that time that really kind of presented a dividing wedge in, in the denomination Northern Baptist was soul liberty verse orthodox theology and soul liberty would, would be defined as individualistic doctrine. Um, what I think or what I feel or what my conscience uh, deems worthy should be valid and should be okay. Therefore really presenting a more broad understanding of what it means to be a Christian or what it means to be a faithful church and pulling yourself out of scripture as a defining authority, but in putting an authority within the individual's uh, perspective and where orthodox theology is to say what is authoritative is scripture and scripture alone is the, uh, the true authority over an individual's conscience and over a church. Um, and again, confessions are not, um, scripture, but they present a standard, a summary for instructions and to protect the church from error and heresy. And that really was, what was really going on conservatives saw that heresy and error was now winning the day and being very much promoted by the modernist movement. And so there was a group of pastors and I will mention just a few of them that, that established the fundamentalist federation. And this was John Roach Stratton who preached, who was the pastor of Calvary Baptist church in New York city. And then William Bell Riley, who was the pastor of first Baptist of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, those were two prominent pastors, conservative pastors who were really pushing for um, a, a more confessional Northern Baptist convention, a, a convention that was solid on Orthodox theology that they, that they understood and taught um, who God was, what salvation was. Uh, salvation was by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Um, that, that, that is how one is saved is faith in Christ alone. Um, and then on the modernist side, on the modernist wing, we see Helen Barrett Montgomery and uh, Cornelius uh, Wilfkin of Park Avenue Baptist Church in New York City and the prominent Harry Emerson Fosdick, who at the uh, kind of leading up to the 1922 convention in Indianapolis, Indiana, preached the famous sermon, shall the fundamentalists win? And again, he was arguing against the, the activities and the arguments and the agenda of the fundamentalist federation, fighting against confessionalism, fighting for a more, uh, uh, that we should allow people, uh, to have their own individual experience and define for themselves what is, uh, Christian and, and biblical to them. And we should not place above them uh, a, a framework or a standard by which to define what a Christian is and what a Christian should think. Um, and so 
really these fundamentalist federations, they, they desired to guard the, the Northern Baptist convention against heretical interpretations, which were really, they were pouring into the Northern Baptist convention and Harry Emerson Fosdick was one of the main leaders of this. Um, and again, one of their, their major arguments was this view of soul liberty that people have their own conscience and their own wills and should be able to determine what they think is right and wrong and proper and good and faithful. But that's not, again, it's, it's a misunderstanding. It's a, it's an, an, an error, a radical view of who's truly authority. It's not you who has authority. It is Christ, the King who has authority. It is his kingdom. It is his church and we must follow his standard. We must uh, do as Matthew 28 says, which is to uh, teach them all that Christ commanded, not teach them what they want to hear or what their soul desires, but what Christ commanded. And uh, this was really uh, the real major fight um, was the individual verse scripture against what is ortho, uh, orthodox. Um, now, unfortunately, um, Harry Emerson Fosdick and, and his band of uh, misfits did win the day. So the fundamentalists didn't win. Uh, the modernists won. And um, eventually, um, Riley, who was a part of this, William Bill Riley, who was a part of this fundamentalist federation, uh, attempted one last time in 1946 to persuade um, the Northern Baptists to be far more confessional to hold scripture above the soul liberty, above the individual uh, thought and view and, um, and unfortunately lost that day as well. Um, and so he ended up leaving the Northern Baptist convention. He eventually passed away not too long after before his death, he started a school in Minneapolis in Minnesota called Northwestern Bible and missionary training school. And he asked in 19 and in the 1950s for the famous Billy Graham to be the president of this school. Well, Billy Graham ended up declining and starting kind of his own path of, of creating the neo evangelical movement and establishing fuller seminary in California and starting Christianity today. Um, so really those federal, those fundamentalist federation, that group, um, while they did not win in the Northern Baptist Convention fights, they ended up passing on that legacy to Billy Graham and to the evangelical movement, which um, over time we have seen has actually won the day um, with, especially when we think of not only just independent evangelical churches like Central Church, which is a kind of a part of that movement, but also the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, who struggled with their own issues in the 1920s, or uh, E.Y. Mullins, who was the president of Southern Seminary um, and also was a prominent leader within the SBC, um, kind of in some ways per, uh, delayed the eventual fight within the SBC uh, amongst mo- uh, modernists and fundamentalists and broadening the um, 
the tent within the SPC, hence why the SPC became so big in the 20th century. But eventually those fights did happen in the 1980s, 70s and 80s in the SPC. And thankfully the fundamentals did win the day or the conservative resurgence did win the day in the seminary that I went to Southern seminary, 1994 elected Al Mohler to be the president as a current president of the day and actually has been a major influence uh, in the SPC for establishing confessionalism and for orthodox theology to be the dominant um, authority in the SBC and hence why the SBC has been able to continue to um, to grow and be faithful. Now, it's, we talked about this last, I think last year, the first season of uh, a pastor's newspaper, the SBC has not been perfect, has made a lot of mistakes, um, but when it comes to the area of faithfulness to scripture, uh, the SBC has been able to guard itself from error and heretical views. Unlike the Northern Baptist convention, which is somewhat of a joke now, um, rarely did anyone think of Northern Baptist churches because most of them have died or in the process of dying. Um, very small congregations. They are mainline Protestant. Um, primarily they have given up, um, Orthodox theology in the 1920s, the legacy of soul liberty or individual, um, soul freedom has led to death for the Northern Baptist convention. And I think when we think about, you know, when we think about confessionalism, it seems, you know, uh, what are you saying, Matt? Are you saying that new Testament is irrelevant, that we have to establish these, these man-made confessions to kind of lead us. And I understand the argument, right? It, it, it's this idea that we're, we're saying that the, the new Testament is not sufficient enough or the Bible is not sufficient enough. Again, what we're stating is, is simply a, a summary of what is faithful and proper, uh, theology and faithfulness to God's word. And we, we do this quite often. Um, we have statement of faith. We have, uh, summaries on websites of our beliefs. Um, these are important. I mean, if you were to go to a church or you were to, uh, go to a church website and ask, all right, I'm going to go to this church. What do they believe? What do you do? You go to their beliefs page, right? This is something we do all the time. And it's not, um, it's, it's good and proper to do this because what it does, it presents to those who are checking out your church or even those who are becoming members of your church. What do you believe, right? What do you understand about God? What do you understand about that? God is not just the, it's not the, it's not the Islamic God. Who's the one, a noble God. It's the God, the Trinitarian God, God, the father, God, the father, God, the son, the God, the Holy spirit, the God who reveals himself in his word right? The God who redeems sinful humanity through his son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and then affects that salvation through his Holy spirit and dwells his children with his spirit, confirming and sealing them, um, for their, their future salvation when Christ returns and all things is made new, right? What is, uh, what is scripture? It is God's word is true in every way. It's without error. What is sufficient? It's necessary for salvation. It's clear. It's powerful. It's authoritative over the church, not over any of the pastor of the church doesn't have authority. The scripture has authority, right? If the pastor says, listen to me, do as I say, you should say, no, if I'm not persuaded by scripture, I will not follow. Scripture is the one that has authority over my soul, not you. Scripture. 
And I think you're asking, well, then why confessions? Well, confessions are helpful because health confessions are built over time. They are rooted in history. They're rooted in a community, uh, communal interpretation. When the London Baptist confession of 1689 was put together, it was a committee of people of, of men who, who, uh, agreed on these are the fundamentals of what it means to be a faithful, um, Baptist, right? Um, and this is, these are helpful. It protects the church from error and heresy. When the church, when the church or when Christians slide into individualism or the soul liberty, well, I will determine what I think is right and good. I will ignore history. I will ignore the community of interpretation. I will define for myself that never goes anywhere. Well, look at Andy Stanley. Look at the United Methodist Church. Look at the mainline Protestant churches. That is the example of soul, liberty, freedom. It leads to death. It leads to division. It leads to uh, the slow dying because it's not even, it's not Christian as uh, Macon, uh, Grisham Macon says, it's another religion altogether. It's as Paul says in Galatians, it's to be a curse because it's another gospel. And that gospel is not good because it's not from God. And so I think it's, you know, we have a tendency to be, we see confessions and we say that's Catholic. Well, historically, that's not true. Um, Baptists have been confessional for most of their history. And so we can't just say that, well, that's Catholic as kind of an end of the argument, never used because that's Catholic. And that's just, it's just not proper. It's not historic. It is for our good to think hard and to think well about what the scripture says about important uh, topics like who God is, what is salvation? What is the church? Uh, what is the Bible? What is sexual ethics? What is marriage? These are all important things that we have to look to scripture and the scripture speaks quite often about all these things. I mean, we think about sexual ethics, there's an entire book on sex and so we have to think about these things well. I think about think about these things scripturally. And when we when we state them, when we publish them, when we 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 proclaim them, we say this is what it means. This is proper belief. If you do not believe these things, if you come up with your own interpretation, completely disconnected, you're you're you are sliding into error. You're sliding into heresy, right? And you're sliding away from the standard. And so I think as you think about this, uh, I would encourage you, if you want an example of a confession, look up the 1689 London Baptist Confession, the one I would recommend. Uh, There's the Abstract of Principles, which is the uh, confession that Southern Seminary, which um, I went to school and Pastor Greg Sucre went to school, um, are, you know, this is their, their confession. Um, to go to go against the abstract principles, you can't be a professor or a faculty at Southern Seminary. Um, there are other, you know, there's the Westminster. There's other confessions out there that are helpful to read. They're helpful to understand. They prevent standards on some important beliefs. Um, and again, they're not the New Testament. They're not scripture. They're attempting to be present a summary of those things. And I think it's important for churches to become more confessional. Um, these are, these are good things. It, it's a standard for instruction, standard for evangelism and a, a guard against heresy 
an error. And there's a lot of churches in error. And there's a lot of churches in sliding into heresy. And it's because they are not confessional. They, they have abandoned um, the church's understanding of important issues historically. And from a community standpoint, like what does the, what do churches think about these things? They've abandoned it for their own agendas and for their own um, increasing of numbers or expanding their relevancy or whatever terminology you want to use. And it will never lead good. There will be judgment by the Lord on those churches who do that. And it has been proven true uh, in the past and it will be proven true today and into the future as well. Um, And so if you, if you're interested, you're asking yourself the question, why are these denominations becoming so liberal? Why is the United Methodist church? Why did they become so liberal? Why is uh, Andy Stanley uh, rejecting scripture? And the answer is soul liberty. It's freedom and individualistic uh, interpretations, doing things, whatever feels good, whatever's right in the moment and ignoring the, the pattern of the church since the beginning which is to state, this is what we believe. This is our statement of faith. You got to go back all the way to the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. The church has been doing this for a long time. It is good. It is proper. It is helpful. The Spirit has led the church to do this. And the church should re, re-engage on this issue and be awakened to this type of pattern again. And you do see this, interesting enough, especially amongst... Um, young Baptist churches um, of reestablishing confessionalism. And I think that's a good thing. And I think it will protect the church in the long run. It does narrow in some ways um, the church, but I think narrowing is never, it, it has its, if you go too far, it's bad, but at times broadening it, broadening, becoming too broad is not helpful because when you broaden yourself so much, you almost broaden yourself to a point where you're not even Christian anymore. And that's not helpful, not good either. And so um, that answers kind of that question. If you're wondering that Um, and uh, hopefully next week, we'll we'll probably return to some, actually uh, (laughs) I am traveling to um, overseas next week. So we'll not be uh, doing an episode next week, but uh, the week after we'll uh, have some uh, fun, hopefully stories about my trips with my wife, Lisa and I uh, hope you enjoy this. Again, this will take this episode and try to make it into an article that you can read as well. So um, please enjoy that. And if you have um, topics that you would like for me to address on this podcast, please email me at mcastro at centralchurch.com. And I would love to hear your um, just request and see if we can maybe uh, present those um, those topics this year as well. So uh, have a wonderful, uh, wonderful rest of your week and weekend. Tennessee's playing Auburn tonight. So go Vols. Uh, hope that UT can win. We're playing pretty good at home. And so we've only lost one game, which was kind of a weird game against South Carolina. And then we play Alabama on Saturday and that will be an important game for who ends up winning probably the SEC uh, regular season. Uh, both of those teams are tied and uh, Tennessee needs to win probably you know, three of their last four games to probably get a number one seed, which Tennessee has never had in their history is 
They've never been a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. So that would be kind of cool. But the bigger prize for UT fans is getting to the final four. We have never made the final four. And we think maybe this is the year that they can do that. So um, enjoy basketball games as well. And hope to see you in two weeks.